0: We are in the midst of a um, six part series. This is the fifth week. We've been looking at basically the scope of biblical history starting in Genesis 1, and we will end next week in Revelation with Terry. Uh, I really hope he gets to the final verse here so we can cover the whole thing. Um, and I thought to get this week started, would be good to kind of just do a recap, because um, some people haven't been here for all of them, and I have no illusions that everybody goes and just can't wait to get to the recordings after the fact. And I also know I haven't posted them, so you couldn't have listened to them. Um, But even if you had, it's just, I mean, they do a recap on a serial television show to to remind you of the 42 minutes you watched the week before. Um, So I thought it'd be good to do a slight recap to cover, I don't know, a few thousand years of biblical history. Uh, We started five weeks ago in uh, Genesis 1, looking at creation, and we talked about how this creation is not some accident, it's not some matter of chance, and I just just mean in some evolutionary sense, I mean that contrary to a lot of creation myths, this isn't something that just happened as a byproduct of what God was trying to do. It's not like God was in heaven and he leaned over to have a drink and he knocked over a cup and creation. It was more that he intentionally set forth to bring about something. He did it with meticulous care and with a purpose. And at the center of it, he placed two people in a garden. placed Adam and Eve made in his image. And he declared all of this very good. It was very good, but it wasn't And that's an important thing to get about this because we can picture this perfect thing that was done except for Adam and Eve screwed it up. But it actually was something that was done and very good so that it might reach a different goal. He gave Adam and Eve and humanity as a collective three tasks. He told them to multiply, which is basically to fill the earth with more of these image bearers of God. To subdue the earth, and have dominion over it, which is to, not in an oppressive sense, but to actually extend God's good rule everywhere they went so that humanity, would, the creation would feel God's rule as they went for in the world because humans were going into it. And they were to take care of this garden. And This garden was not simply a garden, it was a temple. This was a place where God dwelt and walked among men. It was a place where men were nourished by the presence of God and sent forth with that nourishing and having spoken with God to do the work that he gave them. So they were to multiply and bring the order as this garden is expanded into the wilderness, a good wilderness, but an unordered wilderness surrounding it, with the eventual goal that you have a world covered in a garden of God's presence that's filled with people who reflect God in their being and in the way they interact with each other in the world. That was the purpose of all this. It was very good, but it was to be moved towards this as we worked with God to bring it about in accordance with his will. Now, obviously that's not what happened. The people who were meant to be image bearers decided they wanted to be the center themselves. They wanted to be like God, so they reached up for what was not theirs, and in that moment, something cracked. A corruption entered our hearts, and we were cast out from the garden of God's presence. And what you get there is you get that corruption affects those vocation, those vocational calls still exist. But now the image that we multiply is one that is corrupted and broken. It's not the image that was meant to be multiplied. It's one that does not declare the truth about God and all there is as we go forth. And our rule, we still manage to subdue things left and right, but we do so in an oppressive way often in a way that crushes, that doesn't bring God's life in order, but actually crushes where it goes. And that desire for that union with God and just to be in his presence and to know the eternal has been replaced with idolatries everywhere we go. And what we have is we're cut off from the presence that was meant to nourish us and to bring forth that life so we're kind of stuck in a lost cause at that point. And that's where the first week ended. It was a very pick-me-up sermon. Um, can I get the water that's sitting right in the Thank you, Josiah. Again, but fortunately, this book's longer than eleven chapters, and God was not willing to let things sit there. He interjects himself back into the story. and He calls a man named Abraham. This was the second week, where, and he calls this man Abraham, and he gives him a promise. He tells him that he will, multiply that he will become a nation. And that in him, well, this nation will be blessed and that through this nation, the world will be blessed. So immediately, God's presence re-enters the picture and we get a restatement of those same three vocational calls because the only way you have a nation is if you multiply a people and they have a rule. And that rule was to receive a blessing from God and it was to be a blessing. So it was to, again, act as a, in a priestly role administering God's blessings to the other nations of the earth. This was the call of Abraham, and by extension, it becomes the call of Israel. Because you fast-forward about 500 years, and you now have a nation of Israel. That God delivers out of captivity, takes to a mountain, and then meets with them there. And he reforges the covenant and gives the promises again. He tells them he's going to take them into a the land, that they will rule over it, That he's going to make sure there's no miscarriages, that they aren't barren. So again, that they're going to multiply. Because it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, which for some reason is a way of describing nice land. But it's going to have all those things, and people can flourish there and multiply. And this nation is something where God's presence will dwell, because God establishes a priesthood as well, and He has them build in painful detail. When you read through it, it's like ten chapters of laying out this moving temple, a tabernacle where God's presence comes to dwell. The pro- but this presence coming there, midst this presence is what we need, because it's what, what can actually bring the change to undo the curse. But it's also something that is absolutely deadly. And we see the problem here, because you have a holy God dwelling in the midst of an unholy people. So the thing that we need, the presence of God, is dangerous to us. So what God does in his mercy is he establishes the priesthood of that time, the Levitical priesthood, which basically, through a system of animal sacrifices, kills animals, which In a way I do not understand the mechanics, covers for our sins and purifies us so that these people can continue to have God dwell in their midst without absolutely being destroyed. And they need this because Israel's basic cycle is they're in a blessed state, they fall into rebellion, oppression comes, they get really sad about that and they repent and call to God, God sends a rescuer, they go back to a happy state, they go back to rebellion, they fall into oppression... It just continues to go like this the whole time. Um, Through this cycle, God remains faithful. But he brings, and we see the promise sort of, not mutate, but it gets expanded upon. We get better feel for what is going to come. Two big changes happen. You get a promise of a Messiah. You have a person who is going to come, and this ruling aspect of this nation starts to take on a unified person from the line of David who would come and this special position with a rule that will not be broken you also see the tabernacle gets replaced by the temple and God's presence comes to dwell in a single spot in this grand temple and that's what Mike read earlier which was that's when the temple's built by Solomon and God's presence comes to dwell there so you have God's presence dwelling in the spot and finally in the midst of their continual decline and fall you get a promise that God will forge a new covenant with them and write his law upon their hearts And this is necessary because, again, that cycle is continuous. And it eventually ends not with God rejecting his people, but chastising them and sending them into um, exile. He allows them to be conquered. He allows his own temple to be crushed and destroyed. His presence leaves, and they are captive in uh, Babylon for 70 years. They basically get passed around by different rules over there. And then finally they come home to their land, and nothing's the same. They build the temple but God's presence doesn't come there as it was supposed to. They're there to multiply, but they are in the constant crosshairs of war and oppression, and they cannot rule because they basically have foreign rulers for the entire stretch. So what they were called to do, the promise given to Abraham, is in a spot of not getting fulfilled, and that's where the Old Testament ends. It ends with hope that it will be, but it ends with it it unanswered. And that brings us to the sermon that Rich, uh, Rich, Rick preached, which is Jesus. Jesus steps into the scene 400 years later. You've had 400 years with no prophets, 400 years with a temple that has no presence, 400 years of oppression and other rule, and then Jesus shows up. And he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to bring this reign. But more than that, he is God. And this is something that, again, there's a mechanism here that doesn't make sense to me, but it's something we state as a fact because we know it to be true. He is both fully man and fully God. The presence of God now walks among men in bodily form. This is what Terry alluded to in his Easter text where he talked about when Jesus says, my body is the temple. You destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I'll build it again. Because he is the temple now with God's presence dwelling in their midst. And again, we see something of a reworking of those calls. Obviously, he's the presence. He's the presence of God in a way we haven't seen before. He is ministering as a priest in a way we haven't seen before. To touch Jesus was to touch God. But he also comes and he heals sickness. He raises the dead. He feeds the hungry. He does the things that are necessary for human life, multiplying and flourishing. He takes away the main blockers of that happening and he casts out demons, and he controls nature, which is to say he comes and he reigns in a way we had not expected previously. You expect a human kingdom that's going to take care of the people within it, and he comes casting out disease, overcoming death, casting out demons, and calming storms. So he an elevation of what you were expecting, but it's still in line with that purposes. Way off my notes. So we have God walking amongst us bringing all of this to bear, and we do the most human thing possible. We kill him. We kill him, but he rises again. Death could not hold him, and that's what we celebrated last week at Easter. We celebrated that God's presence came to dwell amongst us. We rose up to once again cast it to try and strike it down, but it would not be overcome. And that brings us to this week. That was our recap. We have, at this point, the temple is back on earth walking amongst us. Jesus is resurrected, and he basically spends 40 days. I think it's just, my mental image, usually is like Easter and then Pentecost, but there actually is about 43, 47 days, or somewhere out in there, 50 days, actually, if you go with Pentecost. Um, but he walks amongst us, and he does two main things. First off, he just kind of proves it's him. He lets people poke him, he eats fishes, he just shows up repeatedly to all sorts of people, um, cooks fish. He's basically saying, yes, it really is me. I really have risen from the dead, and this really is a body. And the other thing he spends most of his time doing is teaching about the kingdom of God. You have this idea that had come through the story of Abraham, that you have this nation that is going to be a blessing, this kingdom that is supposed to be that the Messiah will rule over this kingdom. As I said, there is a little image, and he is now re-explaining it in light of the vast scope you see with God as the Messiah. The vast scope you see with death now defeated. So he spends 40 days telling his disciples what the kingdom of God is and about it. He basically goes back to the Old Testament and explains through all of these things how this pointed towards him and what why his death and resurrection had to happen for the kingdom of God to come as it does Now the disciples have a very natural reaction to this um, they're obviously very excited I mean the kingdom of God here um, and we have something we do when we know we're excited about something. My daughter asks me when Christmas is on a regular basis. How long to Christmas? She's three. She is just starting to get her mind around a week. Um, like yesterday no longer refers to anything that occurred after right now. She's getting some scope of days, but months are well beyond her. But she still consistently asks when's Easter. When sorry, when's Christmas? It's eight months from now. Oh, good. And she feels good about this answer because just getting a concrete answer of when means it's going to happen. <laughs> and that's where we get the disciples at this point in the story. They're excited about it, so they ask the very logical question of when is it going to happen. And this is in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of His?" "'Kingdom to Israel? Is it going to happen? "'Is this kingdom you've been talking about going to happen now?' "'He said to them, "'It's not for you to know. "'Times or seasons of the Father is fixed by his own authority. "'But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, "'and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria "'and to the ends of the earth.' "'And when he had said all these things, as they were looking on, "'he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight.' So they asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom? And his answer is, I'm not going to tell you when it's going to be. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. He tells them they're going to receive power, which you kind of have like, oh, great, but you just left. But he has reiterated this point again and again, even before his death, that he was going to leave and it was going to be good because something was going to come. So... To some extent, you kind of have to... Well, first off, you kind of got to feel for the disciples because the next verse is they're like... They're sitting here looking into heaven going, seriously, and two angels walk up and go, why are you guys staring into heaven? You, he's going to come back. But that's, I mean, that's the sympathy you get from God and the light care there. But they don't panic. They go back to Jerusalem, as he said, and they wait. 40 days earlier... These guys would have headed to the hills, but something has changed because they have seen that even if it seems like God has departed, he has not left the purposes he's promised. Jesus died. He came back. Jesus just left. We're probably going to be okay here. So they go and they wait. So a week, and this is about a week later when this occurs. Um, this is skipping forward one chapter, and I shouldn't have closed the book. I apologize. In chapter 2... When the day of Pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing of wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were filled they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance so we have the spirit of power that god has promised has come Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, you will receive the spirit of power. They went to Jerusalem, they waited. The spirit of power has now come upon them. We see something similar to what occurred when Jesus' ministry started. He was baptized, he comes up from the water, and the spirit descends upon him to anoint him and send him out onto his ministry. Here we have people in an upper room, and the spirit descends upon them to anoint them and send them out into their ministry. But the thing is, the Spirit has come before to people. When the tabernacle was built way back in Moses, the Spirit came upon two men to enable them to do the task. But there's something more that's happening here than just a Spirit coming in power to anoint them for their work. And again, Jesus prepared them for this before he died. In John 14, in chapter 16, sorry, John 14, verse 16 He tells them, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, who is the Spirit who has just come, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. For you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in in you. So this is not just a Spirit that has come for power or for service. This is the spirit of truth, this is the spirit of God that has come to dwell in their midst. God himself has come to dwell in them and he has come to do so forever. That's why Jesus can say, it's good that I go away because helper's going to come. This is not just a spirit so they can go forward as happened in Old Testament times. but this is the presence of God has now come to dwell in the midst, and people. Not just Jesus, people. You can see the progression. We had the fall with the original presence in the the garden. We lost that. And then God comes and he appears in little points to to, uh, Abraham and the patriarchs where they build altars and he talks to them. And then he comes and he rescues Israel and he appears on a mountain and then his presence comes to dwell in the tabernacle. And then that presence goes with them as they move into the land. And then when they find their permanent home, they build a temple and he comes to dwell there. And then that temple departs because they're sin, but it comes back to dwell in Jesus and move around them. And now as Jesus has gone, it has come to dwell in the church. And this is not just funny math of putting things together. I mean, this is something that's fairly explicitly stated. This is just for one sampling. This is a theme that runs throughout. And that's not it. That was the wrong book. (laughs) Do you not know that you are God's temple? This God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. God's temple has come to dwell in men. It came in Jesus. It came in men. And as the church, we are now, he has come to dwell forever. We are now the permanent dwelling place of God's presence on earth. There is not a temple coming later where God's presence will dwell. We are that temple now, forever. And this has massive ramifications. I mean, for one, this clarifies the need for Jesus' sacrifice. I mean, in the Old Testament times, you have the spirit the God comes to dwell in the tabernacle between them. And they have to have a constant sacrifice of animals on a repeated base to cover for God's presence dwelling in kind of an indirect way around them. Now God has come to dwell in our hearts. I know myself well enough. I would basically, if that was the old system, it would be like every two steps you'd have a dead lamb behind me to cover for sin. If this was the way the church worked, we would basically be up to our ankles at all times in blood. But thanks to God, Jesus, once and for all, has made an atonement for sin. Upon the cross, he as our high priest, made an atonement, dying for sin. He was that lamb slain so that we could be made clean. He was the sacrifice that atoned for our sin, and his blood purifies us so that God's presence can dwell within us without killing us. And this holiness, this holiness burning within us also gives us an assurance that our actions will be purified. And this is something that is a great hope to me because I look at my thoughts, I look at the things I do, I look at the compromises I make, and I see that I am still not a fully transformed person, that sin still dwells within me, but I can take assurance that if that holy presence dwells within me and it will dwell within me forever, sin will eventually be put to death within me because God is not going to dwell in the presence of sin forever. So we have an assurance that God will will, Destroy the sin within us. And if you struggle with it and you're sitting here wondering, how can I ever be transformed? That is your assurance. The Spirit of God dwells within you. This is how God wrote his law in our hearts. It's so much better than a little book being written somewhere in my heart. I don't know how that'll work, but he actually has his spirit dwelling within us. His spirit instructing us in the way we should walk. It tells us who Jesus is and it tells us who we are. He leads us. We are a people, a people led by the Spirit. We have the Spirit killing our sin, taking away the things that would hinder us from following God's law. We have a Spirit that brings forth good fruits, that teaches us how to walk correctly in law, and actually trans- is transforming us so that we'll do it. In Genesis, the image of God was cracked within us, and now with this presence of God dwelling our hearts, it is repaired. We have been declared legally righteous by the death of Christ and by the sanctification of the Spirit we are being transformed progressively more and more into his image. It's because the Spirit dwells within us that we have some hope of moving beyond just a simple sin management or a constant transferring of one sin to another. That the idolatries of our youth won't simply be replaced with the more acceptable idolatries of our adulthood but that it actually can be put to death. And this has corporate ramifications that are even bigger. Because individually, you and I each are a temple of God, with God dwelling within us, but the emphasis of the New Testament is that the church collectively is a temple. And I want to read two passages to support this, because this is something crucial to our understanding of who we are. The first is in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, that's Jesus is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, so us together, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Together we are being built into a house, A house where God dwells, a holy dwelling place for spiritual sacrifices. And to make it a little more explicit, in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are individually sanctified, we are individually called and made into a person. We have the Spirit come to dwell within us, that we might be shaped as stones, joined into the grand structure that is the church, which is the eternal dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's spirit. And the rest of Ephesians makes it clear that this is not just some side thing. This is something that has been driving God's purposes the whole time. This was an intention God had when he made creation. This is his purpose to unite all things in Christ, that the church being the temple of God where God's presence dwells is at the center of that. And that might seem excessive. That might seem like some massive claim. I was talking to Becca, and it just feels like I'm going to be saying the craziest things possible. That we are that central to what's supposed to be happening. But think about the story we have been through. The promises of Israel were a recasting of the promises given to Abraham. Those promises to Abraham were that he would be a nation that would be blessed and be a blessing, which is to say, that he would multiply, that he would rule, and that. God would bless them, and through them as priests, that blessing would be administered. And that is the promise that was given to Adam and Eve. It's about not the promise, the calling given to Adam and Eve. So there's a flow from that original purpose in the garden through Abraham into Israel, and it finds in Jesus as the Messiah, as that the culmination of Israel, it finds its fulfillment there. And from Jesus, it's to continue out from there. Jesus, before he leaves, gives what we, what we term as the great, um, great commission. In Matthew 18. Now to the 11th, sorry, starting, I'll just skip to the shorter version. Starting in verse 18. So this is right before Jesus departs. This is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus tells them to go make disciples. They are disciples. If you are a disciple and you make more disciples, you're multiplying. He tells them to... Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. He tells the disciples to, as they go making more disciples, going multiplying, they are to teach p- people to walk in the way he's taught them to walk. They are to go forth, expanding the rule of this kingdom. They are to bring to the people who become disciples more of the order that, was, that God has instructed them to walk in. And God is with them. He is with them always. The presence of God is with them always. So again, you have multiplying, you have bringing a rule, and you have the presence of God being administered through priests to people. We are to be a people transformed by the Spirit so that we can minister it as we multiply and teach people to obey what God has commanded. This has been God's intention from the start. It started back in Genesis 1, and it's still continuing here as we get to this point. It's what he has called and created the church to go do, to bring this to be. He had a plan, and he has enlisted the church into it. We are to be co-laborers of God, and not of some side purpose. We can kind of view the church sometimes as it's like a fix to the sin problem. But it's not. It was, the sin problem was a problem that took people off what the purpose of the church was meant to be in the first point, which was filling the earth People reflecting God's image. Think about the end goal of creation. You'd have creation covered in a garden of God's presence, filled with people bearing His image, and living and interacting with each other in a way that follows His rule. And then you have the purpose of the church. We are to multiply and fill the earth, filled with His presence, living in accordance with the ways of the kingdom. They are the same purposes. that is the goal of the church so the church stands at the center of humanity's part of God's purpose in this world and we need to understand this because beyond Jesus who is obviously at the center it's not a collection of different individuals that make up the thrust of this story it is the body itself it is the church collectively It was Israel collectively in Old Testament times. We tend to read this backwards. We tend to think of the church simply being a collection of Christians. And Christians are where the real action is. It's like it just becomes an answer to a trivia question. It's like, what is a group of lions called? A pride. What's a group of whales called? A pod. What's a group of Christians called? The church. We know the real action is lions and whales, so obviously the real action is Christians as well. well, But it's not that. The church is the thrust of this story. And again, we see that in the whole story. The initial call was given to Adam and Eve. I mean, right there, it's not an individual, it's two people. And the charge is to multiply. That had to be two people, just to get things started. But even beyond that, if you think about how this is through, the idea was not that the earth would be filled with 10 billion people who all passed through Eve's womb. It was, this was a collective, multi-generational project to fill the earth and to subdue it, bringing God's purposes. This was not Adam's kids sitting in the garden while Adam's just kind of slowly expanding it and moving where he has. It was a collection of people, a body, working together to bring this to full. And then you get in the Old Testament, yes, Abraham's called, but Abraham is not the blessing to the world. Israel is. He will be made into a nation, and through the nation, the world uh, world will be blessed. It is, again, we think of the Old Testament, we can think of it as a collection of heroes. Big names and big people doing big things. But those people, generally, sometimes they're just called because God usually calls an individual to fix when the collective has gone astray. But generally speaking, those people's importance comes because of how they are tied to the overall body. The kings are important because they ruled over the body. This is a collective purpose. Israel was to be the blessing to the world. And that continues on to the New Testament. We can sometimes think that, yes, the Old Testament, that was the tribal, nation, people. But now in the New Testament, we have got individual salvation and personal relationships with Jesus. And we do thank God. But, I mean, just consider just moving beyond where we got to. The Spirit falls on all the people. And some just to continue, people rush to see what's going on because all of a sudden they hear all these people talking in strange languages and they think they're probably drunk. Peter gets up with this new crowd and gives a sermon. He gives the first Christian sermon and he it's a fantastic seeker-sensitive sermon in which he basically says, you guys killed Jesus. They're pierced to the heart by that and ask, what can we do to be saved? He tells them to repent, to believe, and to be baptized. And then the text goes on to tell us 3,000 people did. They were baptized. And then how does it describe what happened to them? Does it say 3,000 people that day made a personal decision for Christ? Because we know that's true. It doesn't. It doesn't say either that 3,000 people that day entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. Though, again, we know that's true. It says 3,000 people that day were added to their number. It's driving the point that you have this body of 120 people, the Spirit falls on them, and you have 3,100 people. The body that is the focus is getting bigger. And that continues this book. This book is, the full title of Acts is The Acts of the Apostles, which makes it sound like it's the acts of some really... Great individuals. But the focus of the book is actually the church going forward. The book of Acts is structured in a way that is trying to drive home the point that that call to go to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the outer end of the earth is being fulfilled. The spirit falls in Jerusalem. Visibly, people see it. Then there's oppression, they leave a little bit, and they go into Samaria the spirit falls visually, and people see it. And then they go to a Gentile, to Cornelius' house, and the spirit falls visibly because it's going to the outer reaches of the earth. That is the thrust of Acts, and that's why, though it's the Acts of the Apostles. the apostles show up as needed. Peter is the great apostle. He's the one that is the key apostle all the way through all four Gospels. He's the guy who leads them after Jesus departs. He's the one who gets up and gives that first sermon. He's the one who goes to that first Gentile house and sees and gives the gospel for the first time to the Gentiles, and then he almost disappears from the book. And a new guy that we met the chapter before suddenly takes over a center place. And it's not because Peter somehow disqualified himself from ministry. It's because the thrust of the story was not the apostles it was where the church was going and the point was now the church was going to the outer reaches to the Gentile lands and the person who did that was Paul so the story picks up with Paul not because he's the important individual but because it's tracking the church and Paul is with it as it's going Paul went forth planting churches individuals are converted but the thrust is individuals get converted and form churches everywhere they the church is having people added to its number. Then you have the epistles that make up the rest of the New Testament. Most of them are written to churches. that tell churches how, in light of what has happened, in light of this mission that you are on, in light of this being the purpose of the world, who you are and how you are to live. Even the epistles that are written to individuals, and there's a handful of them, With the exception of one of them, they're written to leaders in the church, telling them to tell the church who they are and how they're supposed to live in light of this. And even the one that's kind of outside of that, Philemon, is written to a guy to remind him that, yes, the slave is your brother. So even there, it's about who the church is. It's telling that the inclusion of the church includes all of these people. This is driving forward a point. The epistles are not about how to live nicely as individual Christians. It's how to be the church on this mission. Even Revelation is written to the seven churches. This book is written to churches because the church is the vehicle of God's mission to the world. From beginning to the end, God's focus is to create a people that will multiply, that will subdue the world, bringing his rule everywhere, and take his presence wherever they go. That is the purpose of all. And we, as the church, are the current vehicle of that purpose. And we will be through to the end, which is what Terry will cover next week. This is the mission, the calling we have. There's a few caveats on that. The first is that this is not the case because the church is made up of the awesome individuals of the world. Israel kind of got a little ahead of themselves and they'll fold themselves and they forgot that God chose them because they were the least impressive. Paul makes the point that you're basically the non-wise people of the world that God has called, not the attractive, not the wealthy, not the successful. By and large, you're the church instead. We are not this central to this story because of who we are. We are because we have been brought into the body of Christ, and He is the central part of this story. We have our role not because of the grandeur of ourselves, but because of the grandeur of Christ, and we have simply been grafted into Him by grace. And the church has screwed things up repeatedly when it gets its head, when its head gets too big, and it starts to think that its own innate goodness is why it holds the central spot. The general vacillation is between going, we are the central thing of the world, and we will now, because of who we are, we will now crush things, or to forget about this entirely and drift off into just an individual set of Christians who lose the actual momentum the church is meant to have. So first thing is that it is not because of how great we are, it's because of how great Christ is. Secondly, I'm speaking of the Big C Universal Church. I am not talking about Mercy Town, just to be clear. Uh, My delusions of grandeur are nowhere near that big. They are sizable, but they aren't that big. Um, This is something that is being fulfilled by the full church that is on the entire earth. Now, that said, the church is something that we are all connected to, the universal church, but it's something that takes on a local manifestation. To be called to be part of the church is to be called to be part of a local congregation. If it's not this one, it should be somewhere else. I know we have guests here. I'm not even saying you have to say here who aren't guests. But there is a local congregation that we should be part of, to be part of this mission. And we really can't be part of this mission without being part of a local congregation. And we need to view our lives. This local congregation, this commitment to a church, should be one of the primary lenses through which we view our lives. Because it is part, it is an integral part of our calling as Christians. It's not some side thing. This is not... The church is never meant to be a nice place where Christians are nourished to go do things by themselves. It is a collective body. We do things by ourselves. This is not a board that we all move together to. Whatever I never watch Star Trek. I know the rest of that analogy. But we don't do it together. But we do as a unit move forward in the earth. And the mission is tied up to the church, not individual Christians, but it's the universal church. And thirdly, I'm not saying that individuals aren't important. I'm trying to elevate the collective calling we have, not diminish the individual callings. God knows the number of hairs on your head. He has counted and could tell you how many tears you've cried, and he will wipe all of those away at some point. He delights in the individual fruit that comes forth from our lives. He delights in each one of us. He will hold each of us and look at us and say son or daughter because he knows our name and he knows who we are and he loves us for who we are. So I am not trying to say that the individual is not important. What I'm saying is that individuals, we are not individuals who've been just loosely collected. We are individuals forged into a family. We are forged into a body. And that body identity, the same way that me being a moon and my daughter looking to me and trying to figure out who the moons are is something central to who she is. It doesn't say she's not as important as an individual person, but it actually tells her she's part of something larger. The end goal of our individual salvation, of God coming and loving each of us individually, was not that we would be taken and put into a little pristine menagerie where he can look and delight in us as he goes. We don't sit in some little glass garden where he just smiles. We were called individually so that we, like Adam and Eve, might be put on a mission of expanding that region. We're called to a purpose of multiplying. We're called to a purpose of being changed by God's rule and then teaching others that change. And we are called to be a place where God's presence dwells bodily on this earth. Where we minister to everywhere we go. And we do this as the church. Because the church is the thing that's moving forward. The church is the thing that the gates of hell will not overcome. The church is the thing that's driving forward. I mean, Terry is going to cover next week exactly where that's going. Well, exactly I use in a vague, hard-to-describe sense, but where it's heading at the end of time, because the church is central to this. The church is the bride of Christ. We are the ones collectively who will stand across the altar of